from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Live. Hey, is that Richard? Yeah, it is. Ira. Yes, hi. The day Russia invaded Ukraine, Thursday, at the very end of the day, I reached Richard Ensor, Ukraine correspondent for The Economist. He'd started the day in the capital, Kyiv, and it's been much of the day traveling. I've got you on speakerphone. I've just moved into my safe house. What do you mean by safe house? Uh, well, um, I'm in Lviv, you know, close to the Polish border. Mm-hmm. And in January, I came here and I rented a, a flat for three months on the off chance that all hell broke loose and, you know, there wasn't a spare, there wouldn't be a spare flat in Lviv available because this is the place that everyone was going to run. Wow. And so I, you know, have had this sort of set of keys in the in the in the back pocket of, you know, just waiting for in case catastrophe strikes and catastrophe struck. And so now, when I'm tired and after one of the longest days in my life, coming home at two a.m., I've got a place to to lay my head. That's incredible that you ended up having to use it and that you are using it. I, I called up a rental agency and they asked me what color I wanted the bricks to be and I was just thinking I hope I never have to see these walls so just give me what you got with him was a woman that he met on the train who needed a place to stay before grabbing another train to Poland the consequences of uh, talking to the western press are not clear so she asked me to call her Natalie here on the radio she's an English teacher 25 a Ukrainian who grew up a few hours from Kiev but moved to the city five years ago and When she told me the long, frightening journey she had made that day, escaping the city while the Russians invaded, it wasn't one of those war stories where you think, oh, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through that. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. For anybody who has ever lived in a decent-sized city, it is shockingly, instantly easy to imagine. Every moment of it happens in such familiar kinds of places. She was not woken up by sounds of uh, bombing, uh, but by her stepfather calling on Skype from England, where he lives. And he woke me up and said that uh, Russians are bombing the airport. Uh, so I, I you know, I, I was pretty sleepy and I didn't believe it. And then I heard the jets and uh, I was just freaking out. I was panicking. They were bombing uh, somewhere. It was pretty close to me and it was pretty terrifying. Terrifying, she says, but a very specific kind of terrifying that you don't usually run into. I felt like a baby. (laughs) Actually, I'm sorry. I felt like a baby because uh, I was alone uh, in the darkness of the morning, uh, empty streets, uh, some strange sounds, nobody is around, and only my stepfather staring at me from the UK uh, on the screen. You know, I felt like uh, I'm not a woman, I'm a baby. (laughs) What do you you mean you felt like a baby? First of all, you are not able to protect yourself. You are not able to do anything because you are a baby. You you are helpless. I see. And yeah, uh, yeah, you just want somebody to come and uh, to save you. She said she didn't want to feel this way for another minute, so she packed her things and called some friends who have a car, told them we have to get out of the city really fast. They headed over to pick her up. It's not far, but they got stuck in traffic. So many people were trying to flee. Finally, when they got to her, they decided to head to a suburb called Irpin, 
just outside Kyiv, maybe 20 miles. Should be a 40-minute drive on a normal day. One of the friend's parents had a house. Because there is a cellar, <laughs> you know. And uh, again, we got stuck in the traffic because people were panicking as well as we did. And on the way, uh, we saw uh, the Russians' helicopters. The helicopters were shooting, she says. Turns out that Irpin was close to one of the big battles in Kiev that first day, over an airport in Hostomel. Russians uh, sent helicopters to seize it, hoping, presumably, to use it to bring in troops and supplies to take the city. At one point during the day, it was reported that they had captured the airport. Then later, uh, that Ukrainian soldiers surrounded them and took it back. At this point, the Russians seemed to have it again. So anyway, that is what Natalie and her friends were driving towards. Seeing this, it wasn't terrifying anymore because we were in the constant state of shock. We were just staring at it, just staring. And uh, we were just trying to save our lives. That's it. They got to the friend's house, the one with the cellar, took a look around. They were so close to all this fighting, and Natalie decided this isn't right. She was going to turn around. She was going to undo everything she had spent the morning doing, go back to Kiev, where she'd just come from, and try to get a train from there to the border, which would mean leaving a place where at least there would be some shelter and heading into who knows what. It's hard to decide. Uh, because everybody was was saying, uh, no, stay, you just have to stay. But I was listening to my inner voice. I, I, I was just, uh, I needed to get to Poland to get out of the country or at least to west of Ukraine. We were afraid that maybe the borders will be closed soon. It is my point of view. When you move, you stay alive. It is my point of view. I just, you know, uh, I'm also <laughs> pretty anxious and um, uh, I just feel better when I'm doing something. When I'm on the move, that means like I'm protecting myself. One guy decided to go with her. Somebody who she'd never met before that day, but who seemed like a rational guy. She said, you want to stick with rational people in emergency situations. Their friends uh, drove them to the train station, a local train, that could take them back to Kyiv. And when they arrived in Kyiv, uh, they hoped to take the subway, but uh, Kyiv subways were closed because they include these stations that are deep underground that double as bomb shelters, and that's what they were being used for. And we had to walk. We had to walk, and we were pretty close to the area where military was, uh, Sorry, I cannot name it exactly because I was just busy running. <laughs> Were you literally running? Mm, let's say jogging. They finally get to the train station with trains that could take them west to the border. They had no tickets. It was mobbed. Natalie had money ready in case she needed to bribe somebody to get on a train, but it was such a moment of solidarity. The conductors just let people on without tickets. Richard, uh, the economist correspondent, was on that train with her, and he told me he had never been in a refugee situation with so many cats. He said it felt like everybody on the train brought their cat. Eight hours later, she was halfway across the country, 300 miles away, in Lviv, far from the fighting. Anything actually may happen, and everything is changing so fast. Like, it was just two days ago, she told me. 
She did a photo shoot with a friend in the center of Kyiv. It was sunny, blue sky. She bought me some flowers, uh, tulips or something. And we were just enjoying having coffee. And now I am a, like a, almost refugee. It was hard to believe it happened. Even though she was somebody who had thought Putin would invade and she thought that he would quickly try to take Kyiv, she had actually been in the process of getting a visa to get out. But she said most people didn't believe that, told themselves it wasn't happening. You know, it is like a little lie to yourself to feel safer. I got back on the line with Richard from The Economist. He's uh, actually talked to lots of Ukrainians about this and pointed out that the country's media and its president for weeks have been saying nothing is going to happen. Putin was just posturing. And unless you read the foreign press, you probably wouldn't believe Putin was going to invade. Also, he says, The first thing that any Ukrainian will tell you is that that country has been at war for eight years. And so the idea that this or that Russian battalion coming near their border suddenly means that an invasion is likely. They'll say the invasion happened in 2014. 2014 is when the Russian military took Crimea from Ukraine and pro-Russian separatists in two Ukrainian territories seceded from the country. And there have been all, all manner of different false alarms and ceasefires coming and going, threats, you know, crazy rhetoric mm-hmm. since then. And so such a roller coaster ride, the idea that, you know, in their minds, the, the idea that um, a bunch of troops turning up on the border changes the game. For them, it's just the latest chess move or the latest drama. And a lot of people have worked out a great recipe for happiness, which is just turning off the, you know, the timeline and, and not reading any of this. What did you see three months ago that convinced you that this might happen and you got an apartment on the other side of the country? <sighs> well, the thing that really worried me was it wasn't any troop movements. It was the negotiations. On December the 17th, Russia unveiled a list of demands. And uh, you read these demands and you start to say, oh, my God, they don't care. Because they're asking for things that they know they can't get. And the only kind of person who conducts those kinds of negotiations is someone who doesn't really care whether the negotiations succeed or fail. Hmm. And when I saw that, that's when I realized they're just going through the motions. You know, they're, they're not serious about these negotiations, but they are serious about the troops on the border. It's so crazy, though. You have an entire country with millions of people who basically just have to guess what one man is going to do. <laughs> yeah, and maybe more than just an entire country, maybe a whole world. Today in our program, we have an episode of our show that we put together back in 2017 about that man, Vladimir Putin. At the time, uh, it was inspired by news that had people uh, guessing what his intentions were and what he was thinking. We wanted to understand him better. And um, there's one story we found that's act one of today's show that I have to admit I've been thinking about for weeks as Putin amassed troops around the Ukrainian border. It's this story about whether he came to power in 1999 by killing a few hundred innocent Russians. So we have that. If you haven't heard it, you really should. And more, including what do Russians think of him? Stay with us. Like one, going in with a bang. So have you heard this story? This is something people speculated about years ago, but now seems mostly forgotten. 
That happened right when Vladimir Putin was coming to power. This was back in 1999. Boris Yeltsin was president, running Russia. Putin was the prime minister. Not well-known, not well-liked, polling at 2% as a possible presidential candidate. And then, Putin had only been prime minister for a month. There was a series of bombings of apartment buildings in Moscow and elsewhere. 300 people died. Putin blamed it on Chechen rebels, invaded Chechnya, started the Second Chechen War, which he won. It was a popular war, catapulted him into the presidency. When he took office, he had 53% of the vote. And even back then, when he took office in 2000, there was a question. Did he bomb those buildings himself to create the pretext for the war and his own rise to power? If he did... Of course, it caused the legitimacy of his presidency into question in a big way, murdering his own constituents, exactly the kinds of Russians that he claims to be serving and protecting as president. One of our producers, Robin Semyon, talked to reporters who covered this and reviewed the evidence with them. Before we get to the more mysterious aspects of the bombings, a quick summary of what happened. The bombings came in fast succession, four bombs in two weeks, in random locations in Moscow and two other cities. Early September was the first one. A bomb in a truck went off right outside an apartment building, collapsing it. Over 60 people died. Days later, thousands of miles away, another bomb goes off on the ground floor of a nine-story apartment building. Nine stories flattened, killing over 90 people. Within days, there was another one, and then a fourth. Buildings destroyed in the night while people were inside sleeping. David Satter was in and out of the country at the time. He's been reporting on Russia since the 70s. It was an atmosphere of panic. The whole country was terrified. People began to fear that any apartment building could be blown up in the middle of the night and any family could be buried under the rubble. There are 30,000 apartment blocks in Moscow and patrols, night patrols were organized in all of them to prevent terrorists from putting bombs in the basements. The government immediately blamed the bombings on Chechen guerrillas. Scott Anderson is another reporter who's written about the attacks. Chechens tend to be more darkly complected than your typical ethnic Russians. So anyone who was darkly complected on the streets of Moscow was subject to uh, arrest or being beaten up. And so a lot of people from the Caucasus, they, they would just stay inside. They were, they were afraid to go out on the streets. But this story that Chechens were behind the bombings was kind of fishy. For starters, it was three years after Chechnya and Russia had finished a war, the first Chechen war. Chechnya basically won. They signed a peace treaty. Again, Scott. What motive did the Chechens have to start this bombing campaign against Russia when... They pretty much had everything they wanted. There was no reason to fight the Russians at this point. Right, they'd won the war, effectively. That's right, they'd won the war. So why commit acts of terror that were big enough to start another war? And just logistically, it would have been hard to pull off. Even in 1999, Russia was was a very heavily policed state. And so certainly by after the second or third bombing, there were police checkpoints all over, uh, certainly all over Moscow, all over major Russian cities. So the idea of these bombers moving around, and uh, these are kind of crude explosives. They're very heavy, 50-kilo uh, sacks of, of explosives you need to haul around. So you need a car. So you're going through checkpoints, and w- with the whole hysteria against against Chechens, certainly anybody who was, again, darkly complected 
going through a checkpoint was going to be thoroughly searched. Even some people in the government questioned the official account. David Satter was in Moscow right after the bombings. And a friend who had good connections told David there were people in the security services who suspected the FSB, that's the modern version of the KGB basically, might be behind the bombings. So David asked to meet some of those guys in person. And they agreed. But this was such a dangerous idea. They wanted to make sure they weren't caught. So they had this very private conversation in a very public place in the center of Moscow. I don't want to give away too many details, okay. but I was in, in, a, in a store of some sort, in a building not far from the Bolshoi Theater. And uh, people coming and going, but we didn't give any indication what we were talking about. Just a couple of men standing there talking about something. The agents didn't have proof. But some things just didn't add up. For example, the simple fact that the buildings were blown up with hexagon, which is a very, very powerful explosive that's used to top off artillery shells hmm. and is, is available uh, only in one factory in Russia, which is tightly guarded um, by the FSB. It's also at military bases. But how would terrorists get hexagen at all, the agent said, let alone drive big quantities of it around Russia unchecked? When you heard this stuff, were you thinking these arguments were convincing, or were you also thinking, well... I wasn't uh, completely convinced that this was a government provocation. But what convinced me was uh, the bomb that did not go off, the fifth bomb. The fifth bomb, in yet another city, Ryazan. And this is where the story about the Chechens seems to really fall apart and where the story gets truly strange. September 22, 1999, two and a half weeks after the first apartment bomb, a couple of residents in a building in Riazan noticed something weird. One guy, a bus driver who lived in the building, saw a car, a white sedan, parked outside the building. Maura Reynolds was a foreign correspondent for the L.A. Times back then, living in Moscow. She talked to the guy, who told her the license plates on the car didn't look right. They had a local city code on them for Riazan, the number 62. But he told Maura, when he looked closer, he saw that the number... It had been written on. It had been drawn on by hand. It didn't look like it was stamped into the metal license plate. Like with a Sharpie or something? Yeah, like a magic marker on a piece of paper taped over the license plate. Oh. And that was immediately like something that kind of, he thought, huh? So he calls the police. In the meantime, two men get out of the car. And start carrying heavy sacks uh, of something into the, the building's uh, basement. Uh, the people jump back in the car, they take off. That's Scott Anderson again. The local police show up. They went down into the basement and came running back up, saying, it's a bomb, it's a bomb. Ryazan is essentially sealed off within hours. Thousands and thousands of soldiers and police um, cordon off the city, and they begin this massive dragnet for these two men and a woman who's in the car also. Local FSB start combing through evidence. A detonator was found in the basement. Here's a TV news clip from then, from a documentary about the bombings called Disbelief. 
The reporter says, the sacks were discovered by police. The sacks were taken to a lab that concluded the contents were hexogen, the same explosive used to blow up the other buildings, the stuff that supposedly only the FSB and military had access to. One day after the bomb scare, Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, who, remember, has only been in the job for a month, launches the second war against Chechnya over the bombings. He says, quote, The question is closed once and for all. We will pursue the terrorists everywhere. If they are in an airport, then in an airport. And forgive me, if we catch them in the crapper, then we'll rub them out in the crapper. Unquote. Meanwhile, back in Riazan, local police find the mysterious white sedan and the two suspects. They were not Chechen. They were Russian. Russian FSB agents with FSB IDs. The head of the FSB, Nikolai Petrushev, goes on TV and is like, there's a totally reasonable explanation for FSB agents to be caught doing this. The whole thing was a drill. This audio of that announcement is from a documentary about the bombings called Blowing Up Russia. First of all, there wasn't an explosion, and an explosion wasn't prevented. But it wasn't good work. It was an exercise. He goes in front of the cameras, he makes this little statement. Again, Scott Anderson. He doesn't take questions, he walks away. It's just like, oh yeah, that was, that was just a military exercise. As for the hexogen, there was no hexogen, he says. There were no explosives. The white powder in the bags, he explains, was sugar. Maura Reynolds talked to people who lived in the apartment building in Riazan back then. She says people were angry, and they thought their own government had tried to kill them. Though, of course, since this was Russia... They wouldn't say it quite that way. What they would say over and over again was in the form of a question. Whose interests were served by this? Who had something to gain? It doesn't make sense, but who had something to gain? Would you ask them, who do you think? Yeah. And what would people say? Who else? The government. But let me say that some didn't, weren't willing to go to say that out loud. You know, they would say who had something to gain, and, and then there would be a pause, and, you know, they would raise their eyebrows. And I would say, who do you think? And they'd say, who do you think? At the time, there was still something of a free press. People could speak out and did. This is tape from a TV special on an independent channel, the NTV network, which has since been taken over by the state. The special is like a talk show with a host, some FSB higher-ups, and people from the building who are pretty mad. Again, this comes from the documentary Disbelief. He's saying, the people of Riazan and many other towns just do not believe all these stories. I'm sitting here and just cannot believe the story the FSB is telling. I myself am a military officer. I was a senior officer for 28 years. I was in charge of countless exercises. What these generals are claiming about this so-called exercise, I just can't believe my ears. 
All of this unfolds very quickly. Putin becomes prime minister in August. The bombings are in September. The war starts in September also. Putin is the public face of the war, and it's going well. This is when his popularity soars. And on New Year's Eve at midnight, the president at the time, Boris Yeltsin, makes an announcement. Boris Yeltsin announces complete shocking announcement that he's going to retire. He's going to resign the presidency, effective immediately. He names Vladimir Putin acting president. Putin's very first act, his very first presidential decree, is to stop all corruption investigations into Boris Yeltsin. These investigations have been going on. The elections are supposed to be in June. Instead, he moves them up to March, which gives opposition parties very little time to organize. And then he, he wins the presidency outright in March. So in this, this incredibly short period, um, you know, about eight months, he goes from being a complete unknown to being the, the president of Russia. Maura Reynolds says when Riazan happened, she saw it in local news reports, but it wasn't a huge story. The FSB may or may not have planted explosives. It wasn't clear what it meant. And it was quickly drowned out by the invasion and the war. Only in retrospect did it start to seem significant. And in retrospect, there were other pieces of evidence that started to seem important. I'll tell you one more. Right after one of the bombs went off in Moscow, this was the third bomb. The speaker of the Russian parliament, a guy named Sleznyov, mentioned the bomb but got the city wrong. Mind you, he was in Moscow, and the bomb was in Moscow. But he said the bomb went off in Volgondonsk. Here's Scott Anderson. So you could make a say, oh, well, he, he, somehow he said Volgodonsk instead of Moscow. Except that three days later, an apartment building in, in Volgodonsk was blown up. Wow. Raising a, the question of how... <laughs> Zelensky knew about the bombing three days ahead of time. The next thing that happens is... After the bomb finally did go off in Volgondonsk, another member of parliament, a guy named Zirinovsky, confronts the speaker about how suspicious this looks. He says, you told us on Monday that a building in Volgondonsk was blown up three days before the explosion. Zirinovsky calls the act monstrous and says he'll try to keep the speaker from being re-elected, but he's hard to hear because they keep cutting his microphone off. Someone calls Zirinovsky a scumbag, and then a scoundrel who deserves to be shot. Finally, Zirinovsky turns around, walks away, and gets hit in the back with a folder of papers. There was an official government investigation into the apartment bombings. Trials, convictions, all held in private. Not open to the public or press. People were convicted. They were not FSB agents. They were not Chechens, either. There have been people outside the government who tried to look deeper into the bombings. But overall, that hasn't gone well. Most notably, an independent commission of human rights activists, politicians, and investigators. Again, Scott. The head of that 
commission uh, was killed, was murdered, shot to death in front of his house. Another member of the committee died under mysterious circumstances. Anna Politkovskaya, investigative journalist, one of Russia's leading investigative journalists, was murdered in her apartment building. She had written about the uh, casting doubts on the apartment building bombings. Uh, and, of course, Alexander Litvinenko came out publicly accusing the Putin regime of, of doing the apartment building bombings. He is poisoned with polonium in London in 2006 and dies. Radioactive poison, polonium-210, slipped into his tea. A British investigation determined two FSB agents had killed Litvinenko and that Putin had likely signed off on it. In his autobiography, which came out in 2000, Putin roundly denied any FSB involvement in the bombings, writing, quote, What? Blowing up our own apartment buildings? You know, that is really utter nonsense. It's totally insane. No one in the Russian special services would be capable of such a crime against his own people, unquote. David Satter has been researching this since it happened and has written two books about it. He's convinced the story went like this. Before the bombings, even before Putin came to power, Boris Yeltsin and his administration were plagued with corruption investigations. He worried they could eventually point to him and his family, especially if some other party or someone unsympathetic to him became president. So he looked to appoint a prime minister who he could trust. He fired two other guys in just three months before landing on Putin. Then he and Putin together had the apartments blown up as the pretext to go to war. And, in the patriotic glow, to install Putin and quash the corruption investigations. Scott and Mora aren't so sure. For Mora, when it comes to the bombings, she gets that something was done by design and that it appears to be for political purposes. But as for who was behind the bombings, exactly, she can't tell. I mean, if you ask me what I think, I have to say, to this day, I do not know. But this is what I would say is that right now, it doesn't matter. What do you mean? Because whether the government or people around Putin played a role or whether they didn't, the effect is the same. Either you believe what they said about the bombings, that there were terrorists out to kill ordinary Russians, in which case you are frightened and the world is a very scary place. Or you believe that your government or someone connected to the government could be bloody-minded enough to kill 300 innocent civilians in their beds, in which case the world is a very scary place and you should be frightened. This is how it works in a police state. You should be frightened. And that's how the government exercises control. It's been nearly two decades since the bombings. And I wanted to know, what do people in Russia think about them? Putin is still their president. How big a deal are they? Are people walking around wondering if their president came to power by killing hundreds of Russian citizens? So I interviewed four people who live in Moscow. None of them said they were big supporters of Putin. 
three of the four had heard the rumor that he was behind the bombings. None of them believed it, or wanted to believe it. I can't know the truth, so I can't say, a 42-year-old screenwriter told me. A 22-year-old student I talked to said she didn't want to know if it was true. As for Riazan, only one of the four, a telecommunications specialist, had heard anything about Riazan. The sacks of sugar, any of that. He knew all the details, though. Read a book about it. And he believes Riazan was an FSB drill. The one person who'd never heard the story that Putin might be behind the bombings was Yulia, a 40-year-old lawyer. It's just not something that people discuss. The media doesn't say anything about it. The families don't talk to each other about this. And friends don't talk about this to each other. Does it just seem like old news? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So I ran through all the facts with her, all the evidence that Putin might be behind the bombings. She said she didn't care. Does it sound like a ridiculous theory? I asked. Yes, she said. Most likely. Some ridiculous theory. Robin Simeon. Act two, Mr. Popular. So one of the notable things about Vladimir Putin is that for years, he's had stunningly high approval ratings among Russians. In January and early February of this year, as tensions rose with Ukraine, his approval numbers rose with them to 71% from the 60s. And back in 2017, when we first broadcast today's program, the press was reporting that his approval ratings were something like 84%, which for a U.S. president, that would be just like unthinkable. And we wondered, is that real at all, that 84%? Or is that from some, you know, institution controlled by Putin? So back uh, then, we asked Charles Maines to look into this for us. He is now NPR's Moscow correspondent. Well, it is real. I mean, these are real polls where large numbers of real people really do answer questions. Russia has two big polling firms that are essentially state-sponsored and one that's independent. And all three of these get basically the same numbers. Uh, This month, Putin dropped by 2% to 82%. And American pollsters like Gallup and Pew, you know, they also get the same results. In the 80s? Yeah, in the 80s. But are people just saying that they like Putin because they are scared to say anything else? Well, that's part of it. I mean, especially with older people. Uh, There was a poll done by this Levada Center. This is the independent pollster in Russia saying that 26% of all respondents said they're afraid to share their views of the government with pollsters. So that probably inflates the number, but just how much isn't really clear. So, okay, if 82% isn't the right number, like, do we have any sense of what a more accurate measure of his popularity might be? Well, well, some pollsters say it's the so-called electoral rating. This is uh, when you ask Russians who they'd actually vote for. Like the Levada Center has this uh, poll they do where they say, if the presidential elections were held next Sunday, who would you vote for? And then only 55% say they'd vote for Putin. Um, And that's, again, the independent pollsters. The state one has a figure that's a little higher, 64%. But, you know, that's hardly the 82, 84 that we've seen. So what I get from this is take the 82, 84% approval rating with a grain of salt, But it is true that most people approve of him? Yeah, he's still really popular. Okay, so to hear uh, what that approval is all about and what people think of him, we asked you to talk to some people who like him, which you did, people across the country, and then you put together this story about one of them. This is someone I knew wouldn't exaggerate their feelings about the president because they were talking to a foreign reporter. 
someone I've known for decades. That's her talking here, Olga Sergeyevna Dmitrieva. I lived with Olga Sergeyevna and her two children back in the mid-90s when I was an exchange student in Moscow. It's a good five years before Putin arrived on the scene. Over the years, she took in several American exchange students. That's her telling me I was her favorite. And I tell her I always say I have a Russian mom. She says, I always say I have an American son, who I don't see as much as I like. We took the tram to her apartment building through the neighborhood I lived in with her family back in the 90s. And she started pointing out all these changes. A new playground, new stores. And just by the new museum, they're building a community pool. Now, none of this was here back when I lived with them. It's all part of the prosperity that's come to Moscow since Putin came to power. And it's why Olga Sergeyevna and lots of people in her generation, she's in her 60s, it's why they love Putin. When I lived with Olga Sergeyevna and her family, Boris Yeltsin was president, and things in Russia were really, really tough. In fact, there's a poll for that. It says 68% of Russians think nothing good happened in Russia during the Yeltsin years. Nothing. Olga Sergeyevna says life was hard back then. People didn't have enough money. Grocery stores were empty. And they only began to clear with the arrival of Vladimir Putin. It seems almost hard to remember now, but when Putin first arrived as prime minister in 1999, Russians had no idea who he was. He was this awkward public speaker back then. His suits were ill-fitting. The guy never smiled. Hardly, says Olga Sergeyevna, the specimen she sees now. She told me Putin's appearance was predicted earlier, when Mystic said one day a man named Volodya would save Russia. Volodya is short for Vladimir. Lots of the older generation will tell you stuff like this. Nobody thought that savior would be Putin. I mean, let's face it, she says, he's kind of short. No one believed he'd change Russia, that Russia would rise from its knees. But it did, rise from its knees. His predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, was seen as this buffoon, visibly drunk in meetings with world leaders, an embarrassment. Putin was younger. He didn't drink. The fact that he was a former KGB agent at least meant he was disciplined and educated. He spoke German, practiced judo. And he brought an end to the chaos of the Yeltsin years, during which the ruble had collapsed several times. The government was constantly reshuffled. And a few insiders, the so-called oligarchs, became billionaires, while most everyone else lost their savings. But as soon as Putin took over, the economy boomed, mostly because of oil prices shooting up. And soon he exiled or arrested oligarchs who'd been running the country behind the scenes. A lot of people talk about how Putin saved Russia. If you compare 1994 and 2017, Olga Sergeyevna says, the difference is night and day. In 1994-95, we didn't celebrate holidays. Nobody was in a festive mood. The theaters were all closed because nobody went. Nobody had money. Under Putin, she says, she lives a comfortable life has a job, can afford to travel, can go out to eat or to the theater. It's hard to overstate how important this is. During Putin's first decade in power, Russians had never lived better, particularly in the bigger cities. People like Olga Sergeyevna became part of something that was happening for the first time ever in Russia, the emergence of a middle class. 
over time, this economic miracle turned Putin into sort of a folk hero. There's the side of him we know in America, the guy flying jets or riding horses shirtless. But in Russia, he's cultivated this image that he's frugal, lives modestly, works all the time. A political analyst told me Putin's seen as the only one who can fix anything or improve people's lives. The one who keeps corrupt bureaucrats in check. He's the good czar. For Olga Sergeyevna, it wasn't just that Putin made the country better. It was that he could do no wrong. I love Putin. Because he's smart, intelligent, cultured, athletic, she says. He's even a musician, plays and sings. I asked her if there's anything he can't do. Her response? He can't cook, but he doesn't need to. Finally, I said, come on, isn't there anything you don't like about him? Anything at all? While we were talking, Olga Sergeyevna brought me over to her computer and started scrolling through her Facebook page. She subscribes to a Putin feed just to see what he's up to. And her feed is filled with pictures of him. Putin snarling, Putin laughing. Doesn't he look like a benevolent lord, she says. <laughs> I just want to point out here that Olga Sergeyevna doesn't work for the government or Putin's United Russia party. She's an accountant, she has been for decades, with a daughter who lives in London and a son who works for an American tech company. One of the things Olga Sergeyevna likes best is that Putin stands up to the West. And this is a big thing for Russians. As Putin likes to say, when they curse me in the West, it means I'm doing the right thing. When it comes to the bad things Americans hear about Putin, that he's corrupt, that he's secretly one of the world's richest men, or that he's meddled in the American elections, Olga Sergeyevna says that's all lies, perpetuated by Western journalists, people like me. A reminder that we have this ongoing joke where she tells me to leave our Putin alone. And she says she means it. I ask her about the many opponents of Putin's who've ended up dead. The journalist Anna Politkovskaya or Alexander Litvinenko, a KGB whistleblower who was poisoned with a radioactive isotope. Who poisoned him, she asks. Some say it was Putin, I tell her. Oh, please, everyone says it's Putin. The moment somebody sneezes or farts in Russia, Putin is to blame. I say, but what about the opposition leader Boris Nemtsov? He was killed. But she interrupts me and says, Nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. There was an investigation. Nemtsov died over a love triangle. She doesn't buy any of it. In fact, a lot of Olga Sergeyevna's opinions are things you might hear on state TV. But I think with Olga Sergeyevna and the other people I talk to, people who love Putin, the moments I understand them best are when they talk about the past, everything they went through before Putin arrived. It's why sometimes I think the real reason people like Putin is not because they believe he'll keep moving Russia forward into the future. It's because they fear someone else, anyone else, might drive Russia back to the past. Charles Maines in Moscow. This past week, he phoned Olga the day that Moscow invaded Ukraine to find out what she thought. She thinks Putin made the right call 
that he was going in to help the separatists in eastern Ukraine who've declared themselves independent of Ukraine and pro-Moscow. She believes Ukrainian authorities were going to attack people in that territory with arms they got from the United States. The president of Ukraine, Zelensky, she told Charles he's a clown, Biden's a dope, Putin, still the smartest of the pack. Coming up, another reason Russians see Putin the way they do, we get to know the disinformation mastermind who reshaped the world of Russian politics into what it is now. That is in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, The Other Mr. President, stories of Vladimir Putin and those around him. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3. Maybe pay a little attention to the man behind the curtain. There's a quote that we heard while we were working on today's program back in 2017 uh, from a writer named Peter Pomerantsev. He said that if the old Soviet Union was 75% violence, 25% propaganda, in today's Russia, those numbers are reversed. It's 25% violence and 75% propaganda. And propaganda was radically reinvented under Vladimir Putin, its tactics and its methods. But this one political operative, John Cole explains. The operative's name is Vladislav Surkov. He was Putin's deputy of chief for more than a decade, starting in 1999. In Russia, he's what's referred to as a political technologist. But those are a dime a dozen. At the top of his powers, Surkov had a much more ominous, if unofficial, title. He was known as a gray cardinal. He doesn't look like a shadowy mastermind. He sort of resembles Rowan Atkinson, the actor who played Mr. Bean, except handsomer. And he actually doesn't manage propaganda at the Kremlin anymore. But the methods he invented to manipulate people and information, I've even heard them called artistic. See, in the Soviet era, the country was run by the Communist Party, and the propagandists pumped out literally the party line and tried to suppress all other opposing messages. And then the Iron Curtain fell, a whole bunch of new political parties were created, and it was the messy early stages of a real democracy, with parties bickering and vying for power. And then when Putin became president, I'm obviously skipping over a lot here, his right-hand man, Surkov, helped solidify the Kremlin's power by putting together this party called United Russia, which gained majority in parliament and backed Putin. And then, instead of tamping down the opposition, like the old days, Surkov built a new system where there was opposition, but he dictated what the opposition stood for. You do not... Uh, allow political parties to create their own agendas. You just write these agendas for them. This is Vasily Gatov. He's been a very high-level player in Russian media for nearly 20 years. These days, he's a visiting fellow at the Annenberg Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy. Well, we decide one of our parties is left party with some sort of communism. Another party is Eurosocialist, and the third party is uh, deep conservative, kind of evangelicals, and the fourth party would be uh, sort of liberal radicals. Uh, and uh, that's what Surkov actually constructed. And he created whole new political parties and wrote their agendas. For example, uh, he created a party called Spravedliva Russia, Just Russia. Just Russia. Uh, yeah, uh, that was a it, it was a political cadaver. Are you saying uh, cadaver like a corpse? Cadaver like a cadaver. I mean, like, like Frankenstein. Frankenstein, yeah. Got it. Created from some sort of pieces of socialists, uh, labor activists, more pro-government type of labor unions, 
uh, he also decided that uh, he cannot allow any grassroots activities uh, which would not be vetted by Kremlin. Uh, so he decided that he will create also youth movements uh, and write agenda for them. Uh, and he also tried to do the same thing with NGOs, like political NGOs or uh, those that control elections, um, transparency uh, or expose corruption, sort of writing agendas for every, every one of them in the Kremlin. It's like directing a movie in a way. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I would even provide you with a very funny hypothesis. In 2001, I think, uh, Russia has been invaded by reality shows, mm -hmm. uh, things like Survivor, Big Brother, and he was amazed how scripting can improve even those likely spontaneous interactions between people. And I know that he was very good friend with all the producers of this uh, reality show. <laughs> and, actually, and actually, I think he was once even present at the filming of the Russian version of Survivor. No way. Yeah. And he's like, if they can do that on TV, sort of fake reality in TV, maybe we can fake reality in reality. In a way, yeah. By 2003, so about four years into Surkov's tenure as Grey Cardinal, Vasily says Surkov had built up a whole cadre of deputies that would carry out his agenda with these different parties and other groups. I asked Vasily for an example of how all this worked, and he told me what everybody told me when I asked for specifics. He said, it's not like I was in the room with him. I don't know exactly what he said to whom, nor when. He did tell me about this one case that he heard about from someone who worked with Surkov. In 2004, Vladimir Putin decided that governors shouldn't be elected anymore. They should be appointed by him. It's a long story, but at first, every other political party besides Putin's was against the idea, genuinely against it. But then Surkov manipulated them over to his side. It helped that he controlled their funding and the number of seats they got in the Duma. And then the parties went through this whole drawn-out public drama, which had all the trappings of democracy— the bills submitted, there are arguments for and against it, protests around the country, people announce they've changed their minds. There are several votes. And finally, after three months, it passes. All of this, Vasily says, was scripted by Surkov's people. The name you hear for all these techniques is managed democracy. Surkov uses the phrase sovereign democracy. I suggested to one person I talked to that managed democracy sounds like a contradiction in terms. He said exactly. It just means there's no democracy. I don't want to overstate Surkov's power, nor his malevolence. Apparently, he was much more carrot than stick in his approach, explaining why, no, you really want to align yourself with the Kremlin. Here's what's to be gained. And he didn't try to do this with everybody. He maintained, uh, under this managed or sovereign democracy, uh, a certain level of dissent some actual opposition. Actual opposition, both in society and press, and even enjoyed this dissent because it was developing natural leaders like Navalny. That's Alexei Navalny. You may have heard of him. He's a high-profile activist. He's considered to be the only real opponent to Putin, except he can't run against Putin because Putin's people had him arrested, and you can't run for president in Russia if you have a criminal record. 
to be honest, Navalny emerged within this sandboxes of um, allowed freedom that Surkov created and, and, and it was important for him because it was kind of making his camouflage of uh, autocracy much better looking. The more you hear about Surkov the man, the more it makes you understand how his whole Truman Show theatrical directing of society developed. He has all of these opposing factions inside of him, too, all working in an unlikely but perfect concert together. Back in the early 90s, he was a PR guy, designing ads for the richest oligarch in Russia. At that point, Surkov said he wanted to be like, quote, the hero and pretty woman. He meant the Richard Gere character. But he's also a huge fan of the anti-bureaucracy gay Buddhist beat poet Allen Ginsberg. This is Surkov reciting Ginsberg's poem Sunflower Sutra from memory. And you, there, standing before me in the sunset and all your glory in your form. A perfect beauty of a sunflower. You might be able to tell that Surkov studied theater, but he got kicked out of the Moscow Institute of Culture after a fistfight, reportedly. He's written lyrics for a Russian band called Agatha Christie. And so you marry PR and art and performance plus his time at Russia's main state TV network, Channel One, managed democracy was just the natural culmination. Uh, he was kind of entertaining himself. Again, Vasily Gatov. It was really funny for him to, to make these things happen, to achieve certain results and, and uh, sort of creative building of reality. Um, again, as I said, it's, it's a very much... Big Brother type of scripting. He means the reality show Big Brother. I mean, you you need to create a conflict, and this conflict will create the conflict, and then and then we just uh, rule it out, and people will vote, and that would be fun. Besides which, he could totally get away with it. Because not only was he good at it, but in Surkov's time as Grey Cardinal, not very many people were paying attention. At this moment, uh, people were absolutely uninterested in politics, because... Russia had a natural economic growth of about 9% a year. And the ruble was uh, kind of taking strength. Uh, uh, credit was extremely cheap. The country was booming. I mean, it's easy to build autocracy when country is booming. <laughs> because nobody cares about politics. Right. And I think Surkov was enjoying this moment because he was uh, not only kind of a shadow cardinal, but he, he actually was openly cardinaling the, the situation. That is, after a certain point, he wouldn't take very many pains to hide what he was doing, which I can imagine the feeling. Here he is carrying off all of these feats of manipulation in secret. You'd think he'd want a little credit. On this point, there was a moment when Surkov seemed to be showing his cards a little bit, deliberately. It's a story that Peter Pomerantsev likes to tell. He's the journalist that Ira quoted earlier. Peter used to work in reality TV in Russia, and he's written a lot about Surkov. This liberal blogger, um, liberal photo blogger, yeah, the very, very popular blog, took some photos of the office. Of Surkov's office? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there to photograph an official meeting, but he said on his blog that he was much more interested in what was in the office. And that's where you have the phones uh, on his desk with the names of all the opposition political parties. Like, literally, there's a whole mess of phones... And on one of them in particular, next to the numbers, there's a bank of buttons labeled Miranov, Zhirinovsky, Zuganov, all heads of parties. 
and you have the portrait of two, the photo of Tupac Shakur next to like Machiavelli or something. Yes, Tupac Shakur, the rapper. It's actually next to a picture of Barack Obama. And at the time, I was like, oh, my God, wow, we've got to see inside Surkov's office. And then many years later, when we everybody realized that Surkov had been funding this liberal blogger, <laughs> everyone was like, oh, my God, he leaked that. He wanted us to feel his power, you know. And he wanted to create an atmosphere where you can never really tell what's true anymore. So everything is suspect. That was absolutely intentional. Surkov himself has come just shy of saying it openly. He talks about it in his book. This is another shape Surkov is reported to have shifted into. He wrote a novel under the pseudonym Natan Dubovitsky. He won't admit it's really him, but Surkov's wife is named Natalia Dubovitskaya, so everyone's like, nutty coincidence. The book's called Almost Zero, or Close to Zero. It's about a PR guy who grew up in the sticks, like Surkov did, moved to Moscow to hang out with bohemian artists, like Surkov did, and is now embroiled in the seedy, murderous underworld of illegal book publishing and distribution. Oh, and it's got an English subtitle, Gangsta Fiction. In any case, Peter says there are these really telling passages in which the hero realizes, oh, wait, everything's made up. Language, politics, every ideology, everything's fake. I can see through it all. It's an epic kind of cynicism. It's not cynicism as in like, oh, I don't believe in anything, but almost like, oh, my God, I've burst through, you know, the shallow shells of morality and ideology and belief. It's like I'm seeing behind the Matrix kind of a thing. Yeah, right? exactly. Very much. The Matrix was a super popular film in Russia, which makes sense if you think about Russian history. I mean, all this generation like Surkov or like Putin, they've lived through communism. They've lived through um, the mafia state. They moved through fake democracy, through uh, sort of religious national socialism and empire building, which they have now. And it's all the same people. And they've gone through through so many different modes of being in the last what, 30 years and such blistering progression that they're kind of left with the feeling that everything is, is a masquerade. So when Surkov says everything is, um, everything is controlled in a construct, what he's actually saying is not a confession. It's a piece of psychological propaganda to say, so there's no point struggling for anything don't even try to do any of your silly you know protest movements oh so so, so in a way you're killing if you tell people that everything is a conspiracy it doesn't lead people to revolt it leads people to go give up well then i might as well give up yeah, yes yeah but again we might be over interpreting here but it's a book <laughs> so we're allowed to you know but yes it's like you know is the confessional just another like i said before surkov is no longer the grand manager of propaganda in russia he was sidelined in 2011 after a dispute with Putin. But he stayed a personal advisor to the president. And he was also an organizer of Russia's takeover of the Crimean Peninsula in Ukraine in 2014. His involvement in that annexation got him sanctioned by the West, meaning he's not allowed to travel to the US or Europe anymore, and he can't have assets in the West either. Surkov was unfazed. The only things that interest me in the US, he said, are Tupac Shakur, Allen Ginsberg, and Jackson Pollock. I don't need a visa to access their work. Which, you know, good comeback. John Cole is one of the producers of our show. Surkov, uh, by the way, seems to have been one of the people overseeing Russia's Ukraine policy until a few years ago. There's some hacked emails from his account in 2014 when pro-Moscow separatist groups in Ukraine had declared that two territories on the Russian border were no longer part of Ukraine in the emails, Surkov seems to be managing them. 
One of the emails Surkov received a list of potential leaders for these supposedly independent regions of Ukraine with asterisks by certain names as the best options. And he was asked in one email to edit a statement that allegedly came from Ukrainians living in the separatist-held territories. In 2020, Surkov was fired by Vladimir Putin without any public explanation. One headline about that read, Putin fires his puppet master. Act four, a matter of principle. Let's talk about the people in Russia who don't like Vladimir Putin. There have been protests against the invasion of Ukraine across Russia, in Moscow, St. Petersburg, other cities. A group that monitors the protests, OVD Info, said that in just the first two days since the invasion, over 1,800 protesters were arrested in 60 Russian cities. Back in 2017, when we first broadcast today's program, there were protests all over the country organized by Putin's most prominent critic, the charismatic opposition leader Alexei Navalny, about government corruption. In the years uh, since 2017, Navalny was poisoned, fled to Berlin for treatment. German authorities said the nerve agent that poisoned him must have come from the Russian government. When he returned to Russia, he was arrested. He's in prison today. But in 2017, he was turning out huge crowds of young people who showed up because of these great videos that he'd do online about the issues. After the protests, uh, teenagers started posting their own videos to the Internet of their teachers lecturing them about the protests, telling them they were wrong about the issues, and the kids arguing back. You know, you were called in for a, a lecture by your principal. You think that very idea of your principal lecturing you on the subject of protest is either unjust or absurd or funny or whatever. And so you film it and post it, just like I think, you know, a lot of 16, 17-year-olds might be tempted to do uh, anywhere. Joshua Yaffa is a correspondent for The New Yorker magazine in Moscow. And he wrote about one of these videos that was filmed in the provincial town of Bryansk, 200 miles from Moscow. Apparently, uh, there was a student there who tried to enlist other kids to go to the protests, which led to their principal and homeroom teacher to talk to them, which they filmed. Uh, it's, it's obvious that it was uh, filmed surreptitiously. You see a lot of the desk in front of you and kind of half cut off shots of the school principal in front of a chalkboard. Okay, and I should say that most of it is just completely black. You see nothing and you hear sound. Mm. And um, and then occasionally the camera sort of bops up. She's essentially saying, with a tone in her voice, it suggests you kind of naive, juvenile, somewhat uh, immature in the ways of the world. Students are interested in this guy, Navalny. What does he really stand for? Uh, what is he really offering or suggesting other than just getting rid of uh, the country's leaders? The principal says, guys, I can see that you're looking at this problem one-sidedly and that you lack range in your political view. You've seen Navalny, you watch his video, and boom, you believe it all. When you wrote about this uh, recording in The New Yorker, you described her tone as um, hectoring and frustrated. I would say that that's really the most interesting or striking thing about the whole video to me, which is, to me, it sounds like Kira Petrovna, the principal, uh, is experiencing something between uh, confusion, uh, exasperation, anger. I think she's really at a loss. Uh, She doesn't understand them maybe in the same way that, I don't know, five years ago, seven years ago, there was something more uh, shared between her and her students. At one point, she starts defending Vladimir Putin, saying you can't blame him for the bad economy. That's because of the sanctions that the European Union and the United States imposed on Russia. And she says on the world stage, in foreign policy, he's doing a great job. 
which the students challenge. The students are asking the principal, okay, so what is our foreign policy? America is against us, Europe is against us. And the principal says, okay, well, why is that? What's the reason? And the student, without thinking, uh, says, well, that's because of Crimea. We took it. And the principal, responding with some surprise or indignation, says, well, and so was that bad? Because in most of Russia, uh, it's seen as like a patriotic thing to have taken Crimea. Yeah, but the, the uh, annexation of Crimea is uh, incredibly popular. It's widely perceived to have been a good thing, basically. And then the homeroom teacher jumps in and argues with the kids over Crimea. The teacher says, did we really take Crimea? Didn't they vote and choose to become part of Russia? The kids correctly point out, yes, Russia did take Crimea, and the sanctions were the result. Soon the conversation turns to the fighting in eastern Ukraine. Russia officially denies that its soldiers are there. But all kinds of evidence has come out proving that this is untrue. Uh, And the principal is essentially trying to blame the crisis in Ukraine uh, on America. Let me read exactly what she says, because it's, so, uh, it's so aggressive. She says, uh, kid, you haven't read anything about this, and you don't know a thing. You've got some very superficial knowledge here. What started this whole conflict? Maybe it was because America stuck its nose in, and, and then they start to argue. Right, and the student asks somewhat mockingly of the principal, did you see American troops in Ukraine? And the principal says, did you see Russian troops in Ukraine? And this is this moment uh, where the student reveals just this like basic elementary uh, kind of non-ideological factual knowledge. And the student just says, yes. No. (laughs) There are videos going around. And then comes really maybe my favorite line, you have no idea. And, and that, to me, gets to the key point of this whole dialogue, which is the kids just have access to this information in just a worldview that they've gotten on the internet themselves, information that's not on state TV. And, and, and that alone seems kind of somewhat destabilizing or uncomfortable for the principal. The kids don't watch TV the way older Russians do. The principal tells them, okay, you don't remember how bad it was here before Putin. The country was in chaos. People had to carry guns and knives. And this is when I was in college. When she says this and when she parrots talking points that you might hear on Russian state TV, she seems totally sincere. As an American watching this, it's one of the things that's actually most interesting about this video. You think that these government talking points on Crimea or Ukraine or whatever, you wonder if authorities are just mouthing these points and they don't actually believe them. When you hear the principal, she seems totally emotional when she runs through these talking points. But those talking points are, in a way, emotional, couched in the language of uh, patriotism and appeal to history, Russia as a great power, Russia as this besieged fortress surrounded by enemies who wish it harm. And, And the students just seem less receptive to those messages. At one point, the kids openly laugh at the country's ruling political party, President Putin's party, United Russia. <laughs> We're against United Russia, the kids sang. A student asks everybody to raise their hands who is against United Russia, and then you get the sense, this part is dark in the video, you get the sense that lots of hands are going up. This is one of the things that's interesting to me about this is because I feel like we read about how 
the Russian government sort of floods the zone in their own country with all kinds of misinformation and disinformation to make people feel that Putin is doing a great job. And, and, and here it seems like you have like a bunch of kids who just seem utterly immune to it. Yeah, and that, I think, must freak out uh, the political advisors and political technologists, as they're called here in Russia, uh, in the Kremlin, who just seem to have lost the country's youth. They just don't seem uh, to be able to come up with the kind of messages uh, and, and rhetoric that, you know, for an older generation worked so easily uh, and naturally, uh, and it flowed with so little resistance. Joshua Jaffa of The New Yorker magazine in Moscow. The original version of today's program back in 2017 was produced by Jonathan Menhivar. Our update of the program today was produced by Chris Bender and David Kestenbaum. With help from Mike Kamate, Catherine Raimondo, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, and Matt Tierney. Special thanks today to Alyssa Sapova, Oleg Kristal, Dan Charles, Christopher Miller, Tanya Lokot, Mika Golubovsky, John Earl, Robin Hessman, Max Postorovkin, Matt V. Kulikov, Andrew Wilson, Arkady Ostrovsky, Christopher Chivis, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, John Dunlop, Yuri Feltstinsky, Andrei Nekrasov, Anastasia Anishchenko, Ramzia Polizzi, Nelly Niesipova, Nikolai Zlobin, and Alexei Kovalev. Our translation of the Russian student video was done by the website Global Voices. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. Obviously, like so many public figures, people ask him all the time, did he ever meet with Russian officials during the transition to Donald Trump's presidency? Нет. 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 No. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.